We'll take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of James. Pastor John started us down our road through the book of James last Sunday morning. And I just want to remind you, I know we're going into the summer season, and uh, two things I want to remind you. Number one is that if you miss a Sunday, you can always listen to the messages, just like I missed last week. So I got on the, uh, our website and uh, clicked on, and I listened to Pastor John's message. You can always do that. We appreciate our men who are so diligent in getting those messages up on the website. Usually they're up a lot of times Sunday afternoon or Monday. So you can, if you miss one of the messages in the book of James, you can always go on the website and listen. Also, I want to remind you as we get into the summer season and we have a lot of people missing on a, uh, every other, you know, sometimes we're here, then we're not here, that don't forget about your tithes and offerings in the summertime. If you miss a Sunday, make it up. Um, just like we provide the messages, we want you to provide your tithes and offerings also, okay? Isn't that fair? Yeah, right, that's fair. So I just want to remind you of that. Be faithful to the Lord in your tithes and offerings. If you looked in the bullet, I don't think it's in the bulletin, but if uh, I get the reports each week, and I know last week we were really down in our offerings, so I just want to encourage you to make sure you're faithful in your giving of your tithes and offerings to the Lord, even during those summer months. And again, if you miss, get on the internet and listen to the message that you miss. Well, here in James chapter 1, Pastor John gave us a great introduction last week to the book and to talking about the testing of our faith and trials and tribulation. And today we're going to pick up and we're going to look in verse 9 down through verse 15. And then in two weeks, Dr. Sheard will pick up right here in our series and he'll be preaching the next portion for us. But let's read this morning, if you would, James chapter 1, verses 9 through 15. The Bible says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. It flower, its flowers fa falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Let's pray, and then we'll consider this text this morning. Father, we are so thankful again just for the opportunity to be able to open the Word of God this morning. I pray that your Holy Spirit would have the freedom to move in our hearts, to encourage us, to challenge us, to convict us, uh, Lord, to uh, comfort us in whatever we need, that, Lord, through the Word of God, we might receive that this morning. Thank you for your precious Word. Thank you that it's our roadmap for this life. And, Lord, I pray today, again, that anyone here who does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, they're not sure of an eternal home in heaven, that today might be the day of salvation for them. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Webster defines a paradox as a statement that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense 
and yet is perhaps true. We have many paradoxes. We find them in the Bible. Let me give you some of them. Giving is receiving. The weak is strong. The empty is full. The slave is free. The cursed are blessed. The death brings life. Just a few. There are many more paradoxes that we find in the Bible. Um, J.K. Chesterton gives a magnificent definition of what a paradox is. I love this definition that he gives. He says, a paradox is a truth standing on its head, shouting for attention. Now, just picture that in your mind because it's sort of a, a funny thought. Think of yourself standing upside down. I would do that here if I could, but I'm not sure I could stand on my head upside down. But think of yourself standing on your head upside down, and when somebody's standing on their head upside down, what do you see? Their legs. And just think of somebody's legs going back and forth, standing on their head. That's the picture that he says. That's sort of what a paradox is. It's like somebody standing on their head, shouting, look at me, look at me. I want to teach you something. Look at me. And that's what Paul or excuse me, that's what James reverts to here to sort of say, here, I have a truth that I want to teach you, and I want to draw attention to this truth. And so he like puts it up on its head or puts it upside down, and it's shouting, look at me, look at me. And so let's look at that paradox that he gives us here in verse 9. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Here what he's saying is, Two simple things. First of all, we want to look at the first is the rich poor. The rich poor. The lowly are high is the paradox. The lowly are high is the first paradox. The lowly brother ought to boast in his height is what he's trying to tell us here. And so when you think of this, we tend to think or we think of um, people who are poor as they're not too good off. But Christ is saying, no, it's a paradox. I want you to look at it just the opposite. Pastor John taught us last week that this portion of Scripture is written to the Jews who are scattered. They're scattered because they're going through persecution. So they're not only going through persecution, but most likely they are poor. They've, they're scattered. They've been on the run because of their faith in Christ. So because of that, they're poor. And so what he's trying to get across here, he says, the poor person should take pride in his lowly position. The poor person, that poor Christian who's running here for his life, should take pride. And often, sometimes when we're poor, we get this attitude, it's always me. You know, I don't have anything. It's hopeless. But God is saying, no, just the opposite, that we shouldn't really focus on our poorness or even on our poverty but we should focus on the fact that we are high in Christ. In other words, every person, even if a person is poor, as we might think of as financially, if they know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, they are rich. So no matter where you are economically, what Jesus is trying to, or what James is trying to get across here is that you are rich. 1 Peter 2.9 says that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, if you've come to that point in your life where you've said, I believe I'm a sinner, I believe that Christ died for me, I'm putting my faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone to take me to heaven, what he's saying here is you are rich. 
You are rich. No matter where you are economically, no matter what you don't have, you are rich in Jesus Christ. And especially here in America, where, where every one of us who sit here, no matter who the person that might make the least amount of money, we are rich compared to the rest of the world. But Jesus is saying, listen, no matter where you are in economically, you are rich in Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in Romans 5, 2, he says that we should boast in the Lord, rejoice in the hope of his glory. Matthew 5, 3 says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. He said those who are poor in spirit, those who are humility, ought to realize that they are rich in Jesus Christ. And so this paradox that he says here is, what he's saying here is the rich poor are the Poor are rich. The second thing he talks about are the poor rich. We tend to think of rich people in our society as overprivileged. But Jesus taught that they are underprivileged. It's interesting, isn't it? Just the opposite of, of what we think. We tend to think of the rich as uh, are privileged, but Jesus taught that they are underprivileged. Privileged. And the reason he's saying is the rich person is to be humble in his high position. The rich person is to be humble in his high position. And again, that high position representing that he has a lot of money. Usually, a lot of times, he sits in a high position. And so, what the Bible is telling us and what James is writing here about that rich person will have a harder time coming to know Christ unless he's willing to humble himself. In fact, the Bible plays that out often. He says in uh, Mark 10, 17, where we have the story of the rich young ruler. He comes to Christ and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Simple question. So if somebody came to us and said, you know, what should I do to inherit eternal life? What would we say? Well, we would take him down the Romans road and say, you know, you got to believe that Christ is a sinner or that you're a sinner and that Christ died on the cross for your sin. And, you know, you got to believe that. You got to put your faith and trust in him. But Christ didn't say that at all, did he? It's interesting, isn't it? He said, what do you have to do? You have to sell everything and then come back and see me. Interesting, isn't it? What was he saying? He said, really, he said, listen, if you're going to have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, you need to be willing to give up everything. He says, you need to be willing to give up everything. Jesus told him, sell all you have. And the Bible says that that rich young ruler went away sad because he really wasn't interested in a relationship. And, you know, that's the way I find out with a lot of people. They, have, they want to get out of hell free card. They want to get out of hell, but they want to live like hell while they're here on earth. That's the reality of it. And so salvation is costly. It costs Jesus Christ his life. It's not a get out of hell free card. It's calling us to live in a right relationship with Christ and to live a life dedicated to him. We have where the Bible says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter God's kingdom. Now, immediately when we think of that portion of Scripture, we're trying to figure that out in our mind. What, how can you get a camel through a needle's eye? Well, actually, in, again, in biblical times, they would have understood that because there was a gate in the city of Jerusalem. It was called the eye gate. 
And that gate was a very small gate. It was smaller than some of the other main gates into the city of Jerusalem. And so when Jesus said, it's harder for a rich man to to go to heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye's gate, everybody would have known what he was talking about. Everybody would have pictured in their mind, oh, I know what he's talking about. He's talking about that little gate of the city. And like it's impossible to get a camel through that gate. There's no way you can get a camel to bend its legs enough to get through that gate. And he's saying the same thing about a rich person here. There's no way. It's easier for a camel to go through the eyes of a needle than for a rich man to enter the God's kingdom. Matthew 6, 24. You cannot serve God and money. The rich man needs to work at cultivating a spirit of humility is what God is trying to say here. The rich man puts his faith and trust in his money, and God said, that's not going to get you into heaven. So he's saying the rich man is to humble himself in his high position. The poor man is, in a sense, supposed to exalt himself in his low position. So that's the paradox that he is writing about here. And the whole reason he writes this, again, remember in the context of this scripture, he is talking about trials and tribulation. He's talking about that as long as we're here on this earth, we're going to go through difficulties. We're going to go through problems. And he said, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, you're going to face problems in this life. You're going to face trials and tribulation. Sometimes being poor brings trials and tribulation. Sometimes being rich brings trials and tribulation. But he said, listen, as you live through those, remember, the rich man needs to become humble. The poor man needs to celebrate the fact that he is rich in Jesus Christ. And that's what he's trying to get across to us and help us to understand. And then he reminds the rich and the poor about really about eternal things. And so look what he says there in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, whether you're rich or poor. Whether you're rich or poor, blessed is the man that remains steadfast. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And now he sort of turns about talking to both the poor and the rich, and he says, listen, remember this, there's eternal riches. There's eternal riches. So he says, trials will come to the rich and the poor, they, but they, most, they both must persevere, persevere in the midst of those trials and tribulation. He says, happy, the word, he says there is blessed, but it's happy who will persevere in their trials. He says they'll receive a crown of life. The Greek cities crown their heroes to honor them for public service, a reward or achievement. Um, or even a high rank. In Scripture, crowns are, in a sense, representation of what God is going to give us for persevering. Scripture talks often about these crowns. In fact, let me just give you a few. It says, Wisdom will set a garland of grace on your head and present you with a crown of splendor in Proverbs 4.9. The Bible says in Proverbs 16.31, Gray hair is a crown of splendor. It is attained by a righteous life. In Isaiah 61.3, When the year of God's favor comes, He will comfort all who mourn and will bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. In Isaiah 62.3, God tells Israel, You will receive a crown of splendor 
in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. All through Scripture, he talks about crowns. Those crowns are representative of living virtuously or, or performing a virtuous act. Now, I think often we, we picture this as the Scripture talks about like there's the crown of eternal life or the crown of life, the crown of righteousness, the crown of glory. And we, we picture that we're going to get these crowns and these gold crowns we're going to put, put on our head and then we're going to place them at Jesus' feet. I'm not really sure, and uh, we can debate this sometime if you want to debate. I, I'm not really sure that we're actually going to receive real crowns. I'm not really sure about that, okay? Uh, I'm, I'm still trying to, find, to, to figure that whole thing out. I think the crowns really represent virtues that we're going to receive from Christ. When it talks about receiving the crown of life, that's that God is going to give you eternal life. When you talk about receiving the crown of righteousness, you're, going to, you're declared righteous and you're going to be righteous for eternity with God. So these are things that we receive of God. When it talks about receiving the glory, the crown of glory in heaven, you're going to sit at the right hand of God the Father. You're going to sit where Jesus sits and you're going to partake of his glory is what it's talking about. Listen, we don't need some crown to put on. Just the fact that I'm going to sit at the right hand of God and be declared righteous along with Jesus and be able to partake of his glory in that of itself is enough, isn't it? It really is. And that's what he's telling us here. That listen, whether you're rich or poor, you're going to receive a crown of life. You're going to be spending eternal life with Jesus if you know him as your savior. And that's what you should celebrate. So he said, listen, as you go through trials and tribulations on this earth, I want you to remember this, that someday you will be sitting next to God along with Jesus Christ for eternal. You will have eternal life and you will wear a crown of glory. You will wear glory. That's what he's trying to encourage these Jewish Christians who are being persecuted with. And then when he, he sort of turns and now he talks about something totally, it seems to be totally different, but it's really not because we would think, he, oh, now he's going to talk about sin and how we need to overcome temptation. But this is really, again, remember the context here as he's talking about trials and tribulation. And let me tell you, your trials and tribulation can turn to temptation. Let me say it again. Your trials and your tribulation can turn to temptation. Let's think about that. I'm driving down 283 and I get a flat tire. We call that a what? A trial. Okay, it's a bummer. We call it a trial. So now my trial that I'm going through can become a temptation to what? Complain. And then the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 5 that I am to what? Be thankful in a couple of things. Or be thankful only when I have four tires that are not flat. No, the Bible says I'm to what? I'm to give thanks in all things. So when I sit on the side of the road, or, you know, or where I can't figure out where to find my jack in my car, or even how the jack works on these new cars, and I'm griping and I'm complaining, that's what? My trial can become a temptation to gripe and complain. 
And so what he's saying is that if we're not careful, our trials and tribulations that we go through can turn to temptation even to become bitter towards God. God, why are you letting me go through this? God, that's not fair. God, you're not right. You have no reason to treat me like this. So he begins to deal with this. And right away, he wants us to realize that our trials and tribulation can turn to temptation. So then he wants us to understand where does temptation come from? Where does temptation come from? And he wants us to see that we are not tempted by God. So let me give you some reasons that we say it's okay to sin. Let me give you three of them, three views. Three views. First of all, the ordained view. Here's what some people believe why they can sin. It's called the ordained view. Since God ordained everything, He is ordained that we succumb to sin. Well, you know what? God wouldn't have put that in front of me if He didn't want me to enjoy it. God wouldn't have put that sin in front of me if He didn't want me to enjoy that sin. And so there's that view that, you know, because God has given it to us, it's okay for us to do it, even if it is wrong. And so that we say that's the God's ordained it, so God wouldn't have put it here if he didn't want us to enjoy it. There's a second, there's the circumstances view. God placed me in these circumstances which are too hard to overcome. So as a teenager, as a young person, I'm sitting in school and I don't know how to spell the word baccalaureate. We talked about the other night. So I'm out, I'm a, it's my senior exam and I have to spell baccalaureate. I don't know how to spell it, so what am I going to do? I'm going to cheat. God, you put me in these circumstances, so the only way I can get it right is to cheat. Or, or, or stealing. God hasn't given me enough money, so what? That's the circumstances that I live in, so it's okay for me to steal. It's okay for me to get drunk. After all, I, I have friends and they drink and, you know, we're just having a good time together. So it's the circumstances is the reason that, you know, God put me in these circumstances, so that's why I sin. And then there's the third view. It's called the dispos, uh, disposition. The disposition. And this is probably the most commonest or the, mo, the commonest view is... Um, God gave me passions and appetites so strong, I can do nothing but yield to them. God gave me this appetite. God gave me this appetite to do this particular thing. So, you know, must be okay. God gave me the appetite anyway to do it, so it's okay to do it. And so these three views are why people sin. They, they sin because of the ordained view, the circumstantial view, or the disposition view. But what Scripture says here is look at what, what James wants us to see. Let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by who? God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. You can't say today that God ordained it or God put me in these circumstances so I have to sin or it's just my disposition it's just my nature I can't help it I gotta sin and what he's saying is listen don't blame your sin on God and the reality of it he wants you to see here is don't blame your sin on the devil either 
How many of you are old enough to remember Flip Wilson? And what did Flip Wilson always say? Yeah, the devil made me do it. Listen, the problem isn't the devil. The problem is your own sinful nature that started back in the garden with Adam and Eve. You say, man, that was a horrible decision that they made. If I was there, I wouldn't have made that decision. Yes, you would. You would have made the same decision they made. They represented us. And that sin nature passed down from generation to generation. And we are born sinners. A little while ago, we had that precious little Colden up here. Wasn't he precious, those little smiles? But he is a sinner. Just give him about a year. And you will see what a kind of sinner he is. And and the reality of it is all of us have that sinful nature. And we sin because we want to sin. Not because of our circumstances. We sin because we want to sin. But the thing for us to understand is this. The source of temptation is our own sinful nature. And so he deals with that here. Look what he says. But each person is tempted... When he is lured and enticed by his own desires, his own nature. The source of it is our own nature. It says in Romans 5.12, we all have sinned in Adam. We all have the same DNA as Adam does. This portion that James is writing here, he says we are dragged away. We are enticed by our own lust. It's really a fishing term. He uses a fishing term. Here is the word lured and enticed. A fish who sees the bait leaves his lyre and chases after the bait. He leaves his hiding place and he sees that bait and he leaves that resting place and goes after it. And he says that's exactly what every one of us do. James is painting this picture to show us how we're drawn away by our own desires, by our own lust. I think um, Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian, wrote an interesting book called Temptation. And he describes temptation like this. I love this. With irresistible power, desire sees mastery over the flesh. It makes no difference whether it is sexual desire or ambitions or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power, or greed for money. Joy in God is extinguished in us, and we seek all our joy in the creature. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality, and only desires for the creature is real. Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness. Of God. The lust thus aroused envelopes the mind and will and a man in his deep in his deepest darkness. The powers of clear discrimination and decision are taken from us. The question presents themselves is what the flesh desires really sin and this cause? Is it really not permitted to me? Yes, except of me. Now, here in my particular situation, to appease my desires. It is here that everything within me rises up against the word of God. At that moment of temptation, 
we forget all about who God is. We forget all about who God's about his power. And only we see the desires of our flesh. We only see that like that fish forgets everything, forgets the comfort of his lair, forgets the comfort of where he is, and all of a sudden he forgets everything and chases after that bait, and all of a sudden he bites it and he's hooked, just like we are with temptation. So we have this, in a sense, the excuse for sinners, and then the course of temptation. And then he talks about, or the source of temptation is our own sinful desires, and then the course of temptation. And, and, Paul, and James here uses this picture of childbirth. He says that Paul draws us to a different picture rather than fishing now to the childbirth to help us understand the course of sin. It's really talking about two births here. There's evil desires that gives birth to sin and sin that gives birth to death. So there's two births that take place. There's the birth of desires that gives birth to sin, and then there's sin that gives birth to death. So he's talking about how sin grows rapidly, just like you can't see that embryo, but it grows rapidly, and all of a sudden, eventually, it comes out. You can't see what somebody's thinking in their mind, but it grows rapidly if you let it stay there, and eventually it'll come out, and you will do the act outwardly. So, what, what, what is James telling us here? He's saying, listen, we need to be careful. Whether you're rich or poor, you're going to be tempted to sin. It's not God's fault. God doesn't tempt us. You're tempted by your own desires. And so the question rises this morning as we finish up here for a few minutes, how do I overcome this sin? How do I stop sin? How do I stop it in its tracks? Take your Bibles, go back to 1 Corinthians, if you would, quickly this morning, because I don't want to end just with saying, here, sin, now, you know, go deal with it. I want to give you the way to overcome it. I want to give you the way to stop temptation in its tracks. I want you to be like that fish who rather than seize the bait and gets up from the place of rest and chases after of it, I want you to be like that fish who just stays there and doesn't chase the bait. How are we going to do that? How are we not going to chase the bait of temptation? What are we going to do? Well, Paul here in 2 Corinthians, I think, lays it out for us very clearly. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. 2 Corinthians 10, 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. It's not this flesh and blood that we're going to use to defeat our sinful desires. But his divine power to tearing down or pulling down or destroying strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that raised against the knowledge of God and to take take. Um, take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Let me show you how this works. Let me give you a picture this morning. BJ, you're going to help me here. You got a pen? Good. BJ, I want you to take this piece of paper, come right down front, and I want you to write some sins that you struggle with on that paper. Just write. We're not going to put them up on the screen, so don't worry. But just write a sin that you struggle with that comes across your mind. 
I want to show you what this portion of Scripture is literally telling you this morning. I want to share with you this morning what happens when you're tempted to sin, when you're just minding your own business and all of a sudden a thought comes into your mind. That's what he's talking about. That's what James is saying. How, how are you going to deal with this temptation? What are you going to do when your flesh says, I want you to go here? So I, I wanted to give you a picture this morning. And, and I share with this with, in counseling often with people. I think this is really what we need to do to overcome temptation. And so what is this scripture saying? Stand up here. Now, BJ has a problem with sin. Okay. And he's written that on his, on his paper, right? So all of a sudden, this thought, this thought comes into his mind. Okay? So all of a sudden, whatever is written on his paper, the thought comes into his mind. It's there. Listen, a thought is not sin. You can't help it what you think. It's like I'm just minding my own business, and all of a sudden I think, man, John is an ugly man. Well, that's not a good thought to have. So immediately I can't let that thought stay there, can I? Because that's not a good thought. Or immediately I think, man, you know, a bad thought about somebody else. I, you know, whatever it might be, I have this evil thought that goes through my mind. I think like Sunday, I think, man, our offering was down last Sunday because Lowell stole some of it. Well, that's not a good thought to have, and I don't want to plant that in your mind either. But I did wonder why we were down, Lowell. I just did plan it. Now, I'm just giving a little hard time. That's not the truth, okay? But all of a sudden, I have that thought that comes across my mind. What am I going to do with it? If I let it stay there long enough, I'm going to think Lowell is a thief. But I know that's wrong. I can't let it stay there. And to think wrong, would be to let that stay there, would be wrong. So what am I going to do when that temptation comes? The thought isn't sin. You can't help it. The thought comes. But if you allow that thought to stay there and play over and over and over in your mind, that's sin. When the Bible says if a man looks upon a woman to lust after her, you can't help it when you go someplace and all of a sudden there's this huge billboard of this half-naked woman. But you don't have to what? You don't have to take a second look. The second look is when it becomes sin. The first, you see it and you turn from it. That's called temptation. So he has this thought. Whatever it is, it's temptation. So, okay. I'm not going to say it out loud. So that, whatever it is, comes to his mind. And what James is saying is he literally opens up his head. He takes this thought out. Take it out of your head. I opened up your eye. I take it out. Crumble it up. And now throw it down. That was wimpy. Man. I should have got Matt Stern up here. He's a real man. <laughs> okay, now. Throw it hard. Come on, throw it down. Good job. That was good. He threw it far away, too. Thank you. Good job. Now, what God is saying that literally that thought came into his mind, he opens his head, he takes it out, and he casts it down. He rips it out and throws it down. Every time a thought comes into your mind that is contrary to God's word, that goes against Jesus, you have to open up your head, take out that thought, and cast it down. Now, when you take out that thought and you cast it down, as it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, if you don't replace it with something, what's going to happen? It's going to come back. That's why you've got to memorize God's word. That's why you've got to read God's word. If you're not doing those things, I guarantee you, those thoughts will constantly come back until you commit those acts that you're thinking about. 
And so what is he saying? The picture is this. Soon as a thought comes into my mind, soon as I see that bait going by me, I take that thought, I rip it out, I cast it down, and then I replace it. He says, what is it? Casting down every imagination, everything that exalts itself against the name of Christ. Anytime you have a thought that is against Christ, that is against the word of God, if you don't take it out and cast it down, it will stay there and you will have sin in your life. It's a constant process all day, opening up your head, casting it down and replacing it. That's what Paul says, you can be, have victory over sin. Where does sin start? It starts with a thought. And if you allow that thought to stay there and play in your mind, you will eventually carry it out. So here's my challenge to you today. Every time you have a thought that is against God, that is a sin, that is a, every time that temptation comes in a thought, literally picture taking that thought out, ripping it down, throwing it down, casting it down, and replacing it with the Word of God, with Scripture memory, with meditation on God's Word. That's how you have victory over sin. Let's pray. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, you know, if you're not doing what I've told you this morning, and if you're allowing those thoughts to stay there in your mind, you're probably living in sin this morning. That's the reality of it. I mean, he's pretty radical. Paul's pretty radical in that portion of Scripture. James says, here's what it looks like, and Paul says, here's how to deal with it. Don't let the thought stay there. Every one of us are going to be tempted. Christ was tempted. Temptation is not sin. It's when you allow that temptation to stay in your mind that you sin. So let me ask you this morning, Christian, how are you doing with your thought life? What kind of thoughts are in your mind? If they're, not, if they're evil, that's because you've allowed them to stay there instead of ripping them out, casting them down, and replacing them with thoughts of Scripture and of God. That's what God wants us to do to be victorious Christians. And every person in this room, every person in this room has the ability to be victorious over sin. We all do. We can be victorious over sin. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, don't leave without knowing Him. Talk to BJ. Talk to me today. We'd love to take God's word and show you how you can know for sure you're on your way to heaven. Christian, who's sitting here before me today, let me, let me encourage you this morning. You can be victorious over temptation. Temptation does not have to turn to sin if you're willing to do what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Every time a thought comes into your mind that is contrary to God, contrary to God's word, Take it and literally rip it out and throw it down and replace it with the thoughts of God, the thoughts of Scripture, and you will be a victorious Christian. Father, thank you for God's Word. Thank you for how it teaches us that we can have victory over sin, or we don't have to allow sin to bring forth death in our life. We don't have to allow a thought, Lord, to turn to sin. We have the power through Jesus Christ to overcome sin. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.